Hello, and welcome to the Here and Now podcast from Federated Hermes. I'm Linda Dissel, Senior Equity Strategist. Today, I'm joined by Phil Orlando, Chief Equity Strategist and Head of Client Portfolio Management, RJ Gallo, Senior Portfolio Manager, Head of the Municipal Bond Group and the Duration Committee, and Sylvia Delangelo, Senior Economist from our International Business in London. We're talking about the outlook for 2022, including our picks for themes to watch, forecasts, and potential surprises. Well, I guess there's, a, there's nothing to do but start with the virus. I guess we have to continue to stop, talk about the virus here in 2022, uh, what it might mean for our global economies and for our markets, and this Omicron that is so very, very contagious. Let's start with you, Sylvia, and tell us what's going on, particularly over in the United Kingdom, where I think uh, you were suffering this uh, ahead of us by a few weeks here in the States. Uh, Yes, that's right. Uh, Here in the UK, we suffered an earlier uh, Omicron wave. Um, uh, And, well, I think there are like a couple of messages from this Omicron uh, variant. First of all, uh, the pandemic is not over yet, uh, and um, we might see uh, new variants basically still disrupting uh, supply chains and and production, uh, and at the same time, uh, sustaining inflation. Um, and, and, and second, I guess, uh, that, that is also a reminder that uh, the pandemic is not over until it's over everywhere. And so we really, really need to make sure, well, policymakers really need to make sure uh, that vaccination rates pick up everywhere, not just in the developed world, but also in uh, emerging markets. Uh, that said, there, is, there are also some silver linings, uh, as it looks like this Omicron is clearly uh, more infective, but uh, also according to uh, available evidence, uh, somewhat milder. And so that might be really the uh, beginning of, of the end of the pandemic, meaning that the virus, um, typic- viruses typically evolve in this, in this way. Uh, so they become more transmissible, but also uh, less uh, problematic in a way. Yes, yes. And Sylvia, as, as you bring that up, and over in the UK, I know other parts of the world responded to this new variant and said, OK, I suppose we're going to have to, you know, shelter in place, lock you down to a certain extent. And, um, you know, the American citizens are, are very much adamant that we won't do such. What's the status on lockdowns over there and in terms of how it's affected the economies over there? So at the moment, basically, uh, well, the government has, has responded in two ways. First of all, ramping up uh, boosters. Uh, so for instance, I've, I've received like probably 20 reminders uh, to book my, uh, my booster while I was on holiday, uh, just in terms of anecdotal information. And of course, the second uh, measure that was adopted was basically a recommendation for, for people uh, to work from home where possible. Um, uh, but I mean, apart from that, I'd say that restrictions have been limited and we know that we're working remotely uh, now, um, now is quite productive and works pretty well. Uh, so, of course, uh, there will be like a hit to services as people are like uh, locked indoor, um, yeah. but it should be like more limited compared to previous waves. OK, Phil, let's bring it back here to the United States. Uh- uh, how are we reacting? What are, what are you seeing as we start 2022 in terms of companies' reactions and people getting back to the, to the workplace? Well, I, I think it's important to understand, uh, as, as Sylvia said, that Omicron is sort of level one in terms of how companies are trying to manage their business in terms of bringing their employees back, managing the supply chain problems, et cetera. So we've, uh, we've actually dedicated uh, a person uh, to be our, you know, sort of Omicron uh, or COVID guru, if you will, to try to figure out what the cycle is. And I find it very interesting that the analysis that we've done is, is somewhat similar to what Sylvia's talked about. Um, uh, Omicron became a, a big deal here in the United States, I guess, right around Thanksgiving. Uh, there has been a surge. Uh, but as, as Sylvia said, our people suggest that while it's much more easily transmissible, it's much less virulent than uh, the Delta was. So when you look at 
development, say, in South Africa or Europe or the UK, where Sylvia is, uh, and contrast or compare that with some of the experts here in the United States, like uh, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, for example, or, or Tom Lee over at Fundstrat, you know, our view at Federated is that we're, we're getting close to a peak here over the course of the next couple of weeks, you know, by the end of January. And then, you know, we're hoping for a pretty sharp roll off. So I think what companies are doing is trying to take all that information in and uh, they'll let employees work from home now for a couple more weeks, uh, maybe, uh, you know, into uh, Martin Luther King or, or maybe into the beginning of February. And then, you know, if, if the Omicron does what we think it's going to do, uh, we can start to resume uh, normal business practices, more business travel, more more dinners out. And, and then that has significant economic implications. So uh, clearly there was a hit to GDP, perhaps at the end of the fourth quarter, perhaps here at the beginning of the first quarter. Uh, but, you know, again, as we're tracking the trajectory of the Omicron variant, uh, we've got to make that adjustment in our models and then try to figure out where the rest of the year is going from there. Yeah, I, I sound very curious that now people are saying, still, we need to fear a new variant. And of course, the populations all around the globe are fatigued about this. Markets don't seem to care. CEOs don't seem to care either, because uh, as you suggested, Sylvia, where many of us are working very, very well and very productively at home. Let's move on now and uh, start this next question with you, RJ. Uh, looking at a recap of 2021, looking back, what surprised you the most versus your own expectations? I think the biggest surprise uh, in the year we just completed, uh, certainly to fixed income investors, but I'd say maybe to all markets and policymakers for that matter, the absolute surge in inflation. Uh, it outpaced the Fed's intent. It outpaced anybody's expectations. Uh, you know, for context, when you're looking at year-over-year -year inflation, uh, headline or core, CPI or PCE, all those numbers range from 4.7 to 6.8 currently on a year-over-year -year basis. You're looking at some of the highest levels since the early or late 80s on each of those main inflation indicators. That was really not in the cards. Uh, the Fed wanted flexible average inflation targeting to allow inflation to rise to 2% and somewhat above 2%. The numbers I just shared are well more than somewhat above 2%. And it's uh, uh, causing significant change in the policy outlook as we go forward. It's really very, very interesting that we were all so caught off guard by this. Of course, they, they stuck to their transitory uh, comments, didn't they, for as long as they, as they really could. But, but the stock market seemed to be okay with it. And the bond market, I know we're going to discuss this in some greater uh, greater depth here in terms of what we need to be watching. But isn't it interesting how the bond market behaved itself really fairly well throughout this time frame? I would note, um, so if you, you know, if you look at the 10-year ten, the treasury, it gets a, a, a lot of attention, uh, and, and it should. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's a key benchmark. But if you look at the, the yield of all treasury notes and bonds, so it's the index yield from the Bloomberg U.S. Treasury Index, that index went from 65 basis points at the start of the year to 123 basis points at the end of the year. Um, you know, a larger increase there than, say, what you, you had for the 10-year alone. Uh, the curve flattened at various points um, as the inflation story prompted expectations that the Fed would end up getting more hawkish, which indeed has occurred. The, the Treasury index lost uh, in terms of total return last year, had one of its worst years in, in many years uh, in terms of its return to investors. We focus so much on basis points, we sometimes it's helpful to put it in total return sense. Uh, and the U.S. Treasury index, index posted a, a loss last year, getting it up here, I had the wrong number, of 2.32%. Um, that's huge underperformance uh, relative to what our equity friends put forward. And if you consider that number in contrast to say high yield corporate bonds, which were up 5.28%, it's abundantly clear what happened. The economy was getting better. Credit risk was a winner in absolute and a massive winner in relative terms compared to treasuries, which posted a pretty rough performance. That's really, that's really very, very interesting. We focus on the equity side so much on that 10-year bond yield and 
and, you, and you've told us that actually it was a pretty bad year in the bond market. Sylvia, what about internationally? What, what surprised you the most internationally versus your expectations to start 21? So first of all, I agree with RJ. Inflation was a big surprise, not just in the U.S., but also elsewhere. Uh, of course, to a different extent, for instance, um, the, the latest data for uh, Eurozone inflation um, were like 5% uh, for uh, December, uh, but core inflation was somewhat more contained at 2.6% in December uh, 2021. Uh, but still, I mean, inflation was a big surprise everywhere. There was an expectation that inflation would increase um, at some point uh, in 2021. Uh, but I think there was also an underestimation of the impact from uh, the swing in GDP in just two years. In some countries like the UK, it was the biggest swing in 300 years. Uh, and so I think that uh, the knock effects were somewhat underestimated also in terms of uh, inflation. Uh, that said, I think the other big surprise internationally was China and a very pronounced slowdown that the country experienced over 2021. Uh, China experienced what looked like a V-shaped uh, recovery in the second half of 2020, uh, but then that was followed by a very sharp slowdown uh, during 2021. And there were several factors contributing to it. First of all, an early withdrawal of policy support, uh, as policymakers are trying to have a very measured uh, and targeted approach uh, in terms of stimulus. Uh, and of course, we also did see some regulatory uh, um, efforts, uh, mainly targeting the tech sector and the education sector. Uh, and also, and probably uh, most importantly, we did see a crackdown on the property sector, as clearly policymakers are uh, trying to address some of the imbalances that basically have uh, built up in the economy since the early uh, 2000s, when basically China joined the WTO and started to experience very strong growth rates. That's something that uh, I really would like to uh, follow up with you on. You know, China is the second largest economy in the whole world. And it's, it's very hard to imagine the second largest economy going on a roller coaster like that, big, strong recovery, and then a surprise to the downside. And we'll talk about that on our outlook for 22 for, from your perspective. But with regards to the regulations and the, and the tech sector crackdown and the you know, and the, and the schooling crackdown and, and the like. And, uh, and I've just, I've read um, people suggesting, well, then it's uninvestable. China, the second largest economy in the world is uninvestable. I'd love your view on that. I don't quite agree. Obviously, I mean, the Chinese model is very different compared to, uh, let's say, the Western model. Uh, but um, it looks like what Chinese policymakers are trying to achieve is like a transformation in, in the economy. Uh, so from like an a, a investment intensive and export oriented model to a more advanced uh, growth model, which relies more on domestic demand. And at the same time, they are trying to address some of the imbalances, uh, such as um, over leverage in the system, um, imbalances uh, in terms of um, inequalities, uh, environmental damage. Uh, and so, I mean, all these uh, regulatory efforts need to be uh, read within this context. Um, and in particular, Chinese uh, policymakers are pursuing these common prosperity plans, uh, whereby they are trying to focus more on the quality of growth uh, rather than just the quantity, which, is, which had been the, the, the target for like mm -hmm. the previous 20 years or so. Um, and, and so I think that within this context, uh, Chinese policymakers' uh, efforts uh, make some, some sense. Um, and of course, there are also some like short-term uh, dynamics that will affect uh, Chinese growth. As uh, I mean, we are heading into the 20th uh, Congress of the Communist Party uh, at the end of this year, you know, about October of this year. Uh, and at, at that point, President Xi will uh, basically uh, seek re-election uh, for forever. Uh, and of course, uh, he needs some social stability uh, and some stabilization in, in, in growth rates in order to make that Congress successful. And so we might see uh, some policy easing um, and, and somewhat stronger growth in, in China in coming quarters. Lots to consider there. It sounds like we shouldn't turn our backs completely on China as an investment then. Uh, Phil, what about, uh, what about you? What surprised you the most versus your expectations? So I, I don't disagree with anything that uh, Sylvia or RJ mentioned uh, in order to sort of diversify the 
the content here, I'm going to talk about the speed of the economic and corporate profit recovery. Uh, that that you know we plunged into the deepest recession in history back as a result of the pandemic in in February of 20, um, and and second quarter numbers were were terrible. But we had a very strong rebound in the third quarter of 20. Well, roll forward into last summer, July of 2021, the National Bureau of Economic Research comes out and announces that the recession actually ended in April. Two months. It was the shortest, but the deepest recession in history. And then the second quarter of last year, corporate profits were up 88% on a year-on-year basis. Very, very strong. Now we were expecting that there would be easy comparisons, but I don't think we expected that the numbers would be that good. Uh, I, I think it's important to note that uh, it's our belief that the second quarter of 2021 will represent sort of the peak of the cycle. We, we are sort of on a glide path lower, but there's just such a tremendous amount of uh, uh, stimulus, both fiscal and monetary stimulus in the pipeline that, that I don't think that we run the risk of an immediate recession. It'll take us a couple of years to sort of you know work through all of that stimulus. So uh, we'll get back to normal over the course of the next couple of years, calendar 22, calendar 23, uh, no risk of recession in my mind before calendar 24, uh, but the, the the speed of that recovery uh, from the depths of the worst recession in history uh, is, is really the thing that, that I think surprised me. I like that a lot. I like that. Uh, a happy surprise from 2021. And then there's there no wonder, I guess, maybe we saw 70 new record highs throughout the course of last year in the stock market. And I guess there's no wonder that you had, I think, maybe about one five percent pullback, certainly not the 10 percent correction that we often look for every year in the stock market. So sticking with you, Phil, here as we move along, it seems everyone is expecting more volatility this year after last year's quiet rise. I, th- I think that's got to be one of the most commonly used terms this year is volatility expected. So what are the three things that you think we ought to be watching for this year in 2022, Phil? Well, I, I would put Federated Hermes sort of at the top of that list that you just mentioned. As we look at calendar 22, uh, we are looking at the prospect of much greater volatility. And uh, the things that we're focused on are probably the trajectory of COVID. You know, where are we over the course of the year? Um, deferring to RJ, what's going on with uh, inflation and Fed policy? Uh, and then uh, looking uh, at the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, uh, what's going on with, with fiscal policy in terms of uh, the Build Back Better deal that, uh, that didn't get passed at the end of last year? Um, are there other things that we, uh, we need to anticipate as we roll into the midterm elections uh, in November of 22? And, and that, uh, we think, could represent uh, the potential uh, for a significant change in leadership in, in Washington. So there's a lot of stuff going on, uh, which in our minds suggests that we are, we're going to have uh, one of those, maybe two of those 10% corrections, you know, that you talked about uh, in, in your question. We think by the end of the year, uh, we end up at about the 5,300 level, which would imply, you know, roughly a 10% year. We were forecasting 4,800 last year. We're forecasting 5,300 this year. That's about a 10% increase. Um, but importantly, the, the bulk of the earnings gain is behind us. Uh, earnings last year, we think uh, when the dust settles, will be up 50 to 55%. You know, we think earnings this year are going to be up maybe 8 to 10%. Uh, the multiple expansion is behind us. Um, RJ, I think, did a great job of articulating you know, uh, a withdrawal of Fed accommodation. So we, we, we don't see multiples expanding in that environment. Um, so, you know, in our mind, a, a more normal amount of earnings gains, a more normal amount of equity upside, but with a lot more volatility over the course of the year as we as, we, as investors grapple with the vicissitudes of what's going on with COVID, what's going on with inflation and Fed policy, and what's going on with with fiscal policy in the midterm elections over the course of the year. 
All right, Phil, I think you gave me more than three things to watch, but boy, there are a lot of things to watch, aren't there? And I, I guess a lot of opportunities for catalysts for uh, the volatility to increase, but I, I, uh, I, I know you, do, you know, we did make the expectation for 4,800 last year. We were nearly spot on. And so uh, I love your 5,300 figure. We need to, ta- to, to taper our expectations for only 5,300, which would be a lovely 10% return, wouldn't it? I think that's, that would be just fine if it all works out this way. How about you, RJ? What three things do you suggest we watch for in 2022? Following on with the big surprise in inflation this past year, Looking forward, we, we have to watch how inflation behaves and how inflation expectations behave. Uh, you know, the, the Fed is working hard uh, currently to try to prevent inflation expectations from rising uh, too high. Uh, they've done a decent job of that. Um, so, for example, if you were to look at the, uh, the, the sort of slope of inflation break-evens from U.S. Uh, tips, you'll see that Near-term inflation break-evens, you know, say out three years, are around 297. That's about half of where headline inflation is now. So everybody expects inflation to roll over as the as the years start to clock by going forward. But if you look at five-year inflation expectations, or out 10 years, those numbers are quite a bit lower. You know, the 10-year inflation break-even as we speak this morning is at a 252, um, you know, which is pretty benign in a longer-term sense. So the Fed is behaving now to prevent these expectations from becoming unhinged because they're not unhinged right now. So that's a key thing to watch. Uh, How do they do it? Well, how hawkish do they need to get? Um, The FOMC minutes from the December meeting just came out. They were really hawkish. Uh, They're talking about quantitative tightening, shrinking the balance sheet. Market expectations are now for three or four hikes um, uh, in 2022 taking the Fed funds target to uh, 100 basis points or 125 basis points, depending whether you get three or four, uh, reducing the balance sheet. That took years the last time the Fed tightened. They, they, they waited years before they uh, resorted to that lever. Um, and they're talking about that. Uh, it seems more and more likely, actually, in, in the coming year in 2022. Can the Fed find the sweet spot with all these monetary policy levers? You know, tightening just enough to address inflation, helping inflation go back down, keeping inflation expectations under control, but not rocking the markets too aggressively, both risk asset markets and treasuries. Uh, and then finally, the other key thing to watch in 2022 is the behavior of the yield curve. Uh, sharp flattening of the yield curve spooks everyone. Uh, it sends a signal that the Fed's overdoing it. It becomes a challenge to risk assets. Um, so it's sort of the uh, corollary to the second point can they find the sweet spot? And the yield curve is a key thing to watch to help gauge whether or not they're being successful at finding that sweet spot. A couple of follow-ups for me on that one. It, it almost sounds like you're suggesting the Fed is walking a tightrope this year. Would you agree with that? And what are the odds that they can stay on the tightrope? Sounds like, sounds daunting. It is daunting. I think um, the, the Fed is in a very unique place. Uh, Sylvia said a few minutes ago, it was the largest swing in GDP in the United Kingdom in 300 years, I think she said. I bet you it's the largest swing in the United States ever. And we haven't been around 300 years. Meanwhile, <laughs> in the middle of that, in the middle of that, when history books look back, they're going to note that the Federal Reserve put in place the flexible average inflation targeting framework, which was intended to take a structurally underinflating economy and get it back to a sweet spot of around 2%. Maybe they should have waited. Maybe the extraordinary challenge of the pandemic, the start-stop economy, the massive uncertainty, the supply chain disruptions, all the things that have contributed to this inflation surge, maybe they should have just waited. We want inflation to rise, sure, but we're not going to change our framework in the middle of a storm. And that's sort of what they did. It could prove to be a policy error, really, in a broader strategic structural sense that they should have just focused on fixing the markets, which they did very successfully and deserve great praise. But shifting their policy framework in the middle of the torrent might have proved to be uh, ill-advised. And so we'll see. We might be paying a high price in terms of inflation and the tightrope they're now walking to try to manage it is very real. And also, you said in your comments that uh, we need to watch out for inflation expectations and we don't want them to become unhinged. You follow inflation expectations. Are there parts of the yield curve that you know, that investors ought to be watching for instead of just laser focusing on that tenure? Um, if you look at the slope of the break-even curve, so look at the difference between the two-year break-even 
and the 10-year break-even, which right now is about 70 basis points. If that starts to steepen, you know, uninvert, if you will, uh, with the long inflation expectation going up and the, and the short one, the two-year, not moving much, that becomes a problem. That's a sign that the Fed is not succeeding in keeping inflation expectations under control. Um, right now, the Fed has to be very happy about the inversion of the break-even curve. They don't want the yield curve to, to invert, but the break-even curve inversion is happy news for them. That means that the markets are not letting long-run inflation expectations become unhinged. That's what's to watch, the slope of that break-even curve. Okay, Sylvia, I always thought the bond people were you know, somewhat less interesting than the stock people. And RJ's getting very, very interesting, very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's move over to, to you. And what are the three things internationally that we ought to watch for in 2022, please? Well, first of all, uh, and perhaps um, bit, let's, let's say obviously is like the economic recovery, uh, which is likely to continue uh, this year. However, it will um, probably have a slower pace compared to last year as basically the reopening dynamics uh, and, and also that the support from the fiscal and monetary stimulus will start to fade. Uh, however, um, demand will probably um, stabilize as basically uh, households and firms in most major economies have managed to build up a decent cash buffer, uh, which will basically allow them to, um, to um, to weather uh, basically this like fiscal cliff uh, because of the, the, the expiry of the emergency uh, fiscal measures. And at the same time, we should also see some supply constraints basically easing uh, and, and basically these like supply chain disruptions uh, sorted themselves out over, over the year. Um, of course, they won't uh, be, they won't disappear completely. Uh, but uh, I mean, if we see this like demand supply imbalances lessen, we should also see some moderation in inflation in the second half of this year. This is like the base case uh, scenario. Um, and of course, that leads me to the second point. The second thing to watch, as RJ said, is clearly inflation. In my baseline scenario, inflation should moderate in the second half of the year. Of course, there are base effects uh, contributing to it. There are, there's like a moderation in commodity prices, but more, but more fundamentally, basically, this like um, lessening of supply demand imbalances. Um, and, and of course, as RJ uh, suggested, inflation expectations need to be monitored very closely, uh, both market-based inflation expectations, but also consumer and, and survey and business survey uh, inflation expectations, as clearly that's a channel uh, through which inflation, high inflation can become ingrained. And of course, we also need to monitor wage inflation as uh, the labor market is the other channel that uh, can allow elevated inflation to become ingrained going forward. I would also add that crucially, this view that inflation will moderate rely on the assumption that uh, we'll go back to uh, some pre-COVID trends. And so consumption patterns will revert back to services from goods um, easing the pressure on um, uh, good, goods prices. Uh, also, the labor uh, participation rates should go back to uh, their um, pre-COVID levels. Um, and of course, uh, supply constraints and supply chains should like rearrange um, um, in, in line with uh, their pre-COVID uh, equilibria. But of course, it is also possible that some of these uh, COVID-induced uh, changes become more structural, more permanent. And so uh, that would also have an impact on, on inflation and monetary policy. Uh, and of course, the last point to uh, the last theme to, to follow is China. As I said earlier, uh, China is in transition. Uh, and, and this transition also implies slower growth rates. Uh, the base case is that policymakers will manage the process and there will be like a soft landing. But of course, there are also um, risk of, of policy error in the process. That said, in the short term, uh, from a tactical perspective, it is well possible that we see some stabilization and better growth rates in China because of um, basically policy stimulus going into the uh, 20th Congress of the Communist Party later this year. And picking up off of that comment, I'd, I'd read somewhere that in the, in the 
the one year leading up to the last five National People Congresses, the Chinese stock market was, was up, I think, 33% on average as, as the leader wants to be reelected. And she, of course, really wants to be reelected. Do you think China's position for that this year? Uh, I guess it's tough to say with all the things they're dealing with. This time around, there's a, there's a different context. As I said, uh, Chinese policymakers are also uh, leading this transition in the economy, and basic, which implies like lower growth rates down the line. They're also trying to address these uh, structural imbalances, um, over leveraging the system, uh, inequalities, and so on. And so there are other goals, uh, not just short-term uh, growth, but nonetheless, I think from a tactical perspective, we might see uh, better growth rates in the short term in China as we head into this uh, political event. Okay, and just picking up off of uh, the Fed tightrope here in the United States, so the central banks around the globe walking their own tightropes? In 22? Well, I think that we'll see some uh, policy divergence uh, across monetary policy paths. Uh, clearly, the Fed is leading uh, the way um, among advanced um, central banks in terms of normalizing um, uh, monetary policy, of course, to a new normal. We don't know exactly what the uh, terminal uh, status uh, will be. Um, um, while basically in, uh, in Europe, and in particular in the Eurozone, uh, the ECB is, um, is lagging the Fed. Of, of course, the ECB is also facing a different stage of the recovery, as arguably the Eurozone recovery is at an earlier stage, earlier stage compared to the US. Uh, and so I think that here, that in the Eurozone, we'll probably see like more accommodative monetary policies, um, the ECB will probably keep uh, its policy rates unchanged this year and will probably see lift and well, the lift off will probably be a story for 2023, probably late 2023. Uh, and also basically at the last uh, meeting in December 2021, um, the ECB uh, announced an end to its um, purchasing program, emergency purchasing program at the end of mm-hmm. uh, March of this year. But it will be a gradual process as basically the um, um, asset purchasing program, so the, the ordinary, let's say, purchasing program will be ramped up in, fo- in the following months in order to allow for, uh, let's say, well, in order to avoid the cliff, cliff edge effect and allow for a gradual uh, winning of uh, monetary policy support. And so in other words, DCB will continue to provide monetary policy support, albeit at a slower pace over this year. For my part, I like to uh... I like to look, uh, look for the positives, look, seek some things, things for the positive. And I, I think as we look for the more volatile year in 2022 for the U.S., uh, we still have over $2 trillion in excess savings versus what you would normally see throughout our consumer balance sheets. That represents 16% of the annual consumer spend. So should keep the demand fairly high, should be good for earnings per share and and I think also picking up off of what uh, what Phil was saying about the speed of our economic and market recovery, and a lot of that had to do with the fact that that Wall Street analysts were too shy in our expectations for earnings growth, kind of the sticky pricing power, and to the extent, fingers crossed, all around the world, those supply constraints ease up, you could see uh, a seventh and even maybe more consecu- uh, in terms of consecutive surprises on the earnings per share side. So. Uh, some things maybe from the positive side to be looking out for. But now as we consider what we're looking out for in each of your areas, and I'll stay with you, Sylvia, on the international side, how might one position their portfolios as for your your area in terms of 2022? How might they best position? Uh, So I will adopt a more, let's say, top-down approach here. Uh, So basically in my baseline scenario, uh, the economic environment should remain quite supportive uh, of financial markets and in particular of of the uh, equity market, I would say. I would also like to stress that, of course, uh, we see some withdrawal of monetary policy, especially in the US, uh, but overall monetary uh, conditions, financial conditions should remain quite supportive. Um, and, and, and indeed, in the last uh, dot plot, Fed's plot, um, the terminal rate in 2024 is still below 
the, the estimate of, of neutral uh, for, for the US, um, for the US policy rate. Uh, and so I, I think that um, in, um, in broad terms, uh, financing conditions will remain quite supportive. And of course, if we broaden uh, the, the view uh, outside the US, as I said, the ECB will probably maintain plenty of accommodations and it will continue to um, add to its balance sheet. Uh, same story for, for the Bank of Japan. And so in aggregate, uh, if we look at, at the G4 central bank, their balance sheets should remain uh, quite ample and, and, and stable over, over this year. And again, that means that uh, despite conditions being less supportive compared to 2021, um, we should continue to see a, a fairly favorable environment for uh, risky assets. Favorable environment? Are there certain areas of the globe that you would have us focus on? Well, as I said earlier, from a tactical perspective, uh, China and, and countries uh, related to China uh, might be in a, in a good place uh, this year, as we should see some uh, stimulus, fiscal and monetary stimulus uh, coming from, from China and, and basically supporting growth um, going into um, end, of the, end of this year. Uh, of course, longer term, uh, there are still challenges and, and, and risk of policy errors. But in the short term, I think that there's like a, um, a tactical reason to, to be more positive on China and, and, and the Asian region. China and emerging markets, they would like a weaker U.S. dollar, wouldn't they? You know, the, the dollar did, you know, strengthened a bit of late, but we do think... Uh, over time, it's going to start to calm down. The, the, the headwind to that call, of course, is the disconnect in terms of the central banks. So we probably have to get through a period now where the Fed's greater hawkishness relative to much of the rest of the world's central banks, uh, that's in fact dollar supportive uh, in the near term. Um, but I think as the year unfolds, uh, we still sort of have a bearish view on the dollar as it unfolds. Okay, so, so internationally, we like China uh... Uh, tactically, you suggested, Sylvia. And as far as Europe is concerned, and your comment that still reasonably easy money, still stable uh, central bank balance sheets, as versus what the Fed is about to tackle, might be a more benign area, might uh, suggest even Europe maybe worth considering, you think? Uh, yes, Europe might, well, the Eurozone might outperform uh, the US let's, in terms of like GDP growth this year, just because basically the Eurozone uh, cycle typically lags the US one by one to two quarters. And so there's a bit of a catch up story there. Uh, and of course, that, that is also reflected in terms of monetary policy cycles where uh, the ECB is likely to maintain um, easy monetary policy conditions for, for longer. And so the expectation, as I said, is that uh, the policy rate uh, will remain unchanged this year and uh, the balance sheet will continue to increase at a slower pace. Uh, so again, in the short term, there's also room for some uh, outperform performance of the Eurozone. Phil, bring us to the United States now and tell us how one ought to position their, uh, their portfolio as versus U.S. stocks. Well, we are uh, very much driven by uh, valuation. And as we look at the, um, the improvement in the equity market coming out of the trough of the pandemic recession back in March of 2020, uh, we felt that growth would, would, would certainly lead us out of the abyss and, and technology and healthcare were sort of at the top of our list. And, and over the course of calendar 2020, that played out so much so that technology, in our view, by Labor Day of that year had really gotten ahead of itself, uh, led by the, you know, the very popular FANG stocks, you know, Facebook and Apple and Amazon and Microsoft, et cetera. And so we, um, you know, we, we, we took uh, domestic large cap growth and technology back to neutral at that point, and, and we've shifted in another direction. But given the recovery in the economy, we felt that the sectors of the market that, that we as investors have left for dead uh, had, you know, had come back to life, much like Lazarus, and, uh, uh, and they were going to enjoy a positive rebound as, as the market sort of got back on a more equitable footing. Um, that's exactly where we stand today. So the areas that we like uh, are domestic large cap value. Uh, sectors within the, that category might be financial services, 
energy, materials, industrials, uh, consumer discretionary. We still like healthcare. Uh, and when you look at valuation, uh, the technology stocks, the growth stocks, uh, forward PE in that category, right now about 35 times earnings. The, uh, the valuation for these value stocks is about half that, about 17 times earnings. Yet, when you look at, say, third quarter corporate earnings, obviously that's behind us, uh, the technology stocks had a nice quarter. You know, they enjoyed earnings that were up 20, 30% year on year, but these value categories, they were up 50 to 100%. And, and so I think you've got the potential for greater catch up in terms of earnings as the economy gets back on a better footing and you've got cheaper valuation. Uh, similarly, uh, small cap stocks compared with large cap stocks, uh, much cheaper. Uh, and, and particularly when you adjust uh, those valuation levels for growth. So the PE to growth ratio, the peg ratios for small cap stocks, much more attractive than large cap stocks. Uh, and then a nod to, uh, to Sylvia, we like international. Uh, international is obviously struggling right now with the COVID, but as we take a longer term view and, and literally look across the valley, uh, as, as, as Omicron quiets down and, and international economies are getting back on track, uh, we think there's a catch-up trade coming with the international stocks. They're trading much more cheaply than the domestic stocks. Uh, and we think that's a, a nice diversification for U.S. investors as well. Yeah, that's really very interesting that even after, uh, and that was a great call with the cyclical stocks last year, even after those big, uh, massive moves, they're still reasonably valued uh, as versus the growth stocks. And what I found very curious in 2020 was that the the big fang stocks, the big growth stocks, of course, they were big beneficiaries of the stay-at-home situation we were in, but they were used as defense. And with all that money that was printed out there and everything being bid up, stocks, bonds, you know, uh, all, all manner of financial assets, NFTs even, you know, uh, real estate, et cetera, I thought that the one stone that hadn't been turned over was the high quality dividend area. And, and who needs high quality dividends, I guess, when uh, when the government's putting money into our bank accounts, you know, and we look over and see some more money in our bank accounts and all that money that was printed. But it, it, may, it seems to me that as this Fed of ours tries to walk a, a, a tightrope this year and sort of the volatility that may come with that the high quality dividend uh, strategy may get a look-see and in fact has had started that as as recently as September of last year, you started to see some turns on some of those sectors. So I think that's very interesting. To, to that I, point, Linda, you, you've got yes. the dividend yield on the S&P 500 right now, less than one and a half percent. Benchmark 10-year treasury yields are around 175. So if you can find some high quality uh, you know, dividends uh, in the U.S. yielding, you know, three, four, five percent. That that's a very attractive investment, particularly given the fact that these stocks tend to be, you know, slower growth, lower beta, lower PEs, less risk. So in this part of the cycle, given the volatility that we talked about earlier in the call, uh, dividends in my mind make a lot of sense. Yeah, and and of course they are stocks in the end. They're not bonds. And, um, you know, the, this, this baby boomer generation that continues to retire and the great resignation that uh, just exacerbated that, I, I've been seeing the, still lots of money flowing into bonds, lots of money flowing into bonds over 10 years, even as equities suffered. And here, RJ, you're, you're telling us that last year was a particularly bad year for the bond market. Maybe some of these some of these investors see a negative sign. They're like, well, how do I get a negative sign next to what is supposed to be high quality uh, in a high quality investment? So yeah, those, uh, those high quality event stocks may get, get more of a look-see, but RJ, how would you suggest that investors position in the, in the bond portion of their portfolios? Last year, the way to play defense against the rising rate environment, which, which depressed total returns and made them negative for investment grade corporates, for the aggregate index was negative, the treasury index was negative, um, was to take a lot of credit risk, um, own high yield, and you got five plus percent total return. Uh, bank loans, uh, pretty comparable. That's a low quality floating rate instrument, generally speaking. Um, we still believe that uh, early in the year, those strategies probably still make some sense. So we remain uh, high, overweight high yield, but to a lesser degree, 
We remain overweight EM, but to a lesser degree. There's a lot of challenges in EM, some of them Sylvia touched on before. Uh, bank loans, we've peeled back, and tips, we've peeled back. Uh, we still like tips, but the easy money in tips, the biggest money, tips were up over 6% last year um, in total return, positive total return. Um, easy money has already pro probably been made there. Um, on net, we think that the Fed's hawkish turn, uh, which has raised rates uh, and is apt to be a bit of a challenge to uh, valuations, say, in high yield, uh, suggests some caution is, is, is it was warranted in fixed income. Uh, mm -hmm. It is interesting to me how much money flowed into bonds. It's hard to argue they were performance chasing when the returns were negative. And I think that demographics have a lot to do with that. Uh, so there is caution in your asset allocation that I think manifests itself in those flows. Uh, there is some risk as this year unfolds, if the Fed can't white walk that tightrope su successfully, that if we have a bit of a tantrum-like surge in rates, you know, 20, 30, 50 basis points in short order, um, that will bring about the opposite, where people will be like, I don't want to own these bonds. <laughs> uh, and you'll have a period of outflows. Um, I don't think it'll begin a multi-year period of outflows because of demographics, but, but uh, that's a particular risk. So we're looking for relatively muted returns again. Uh, because the inflation problem and the hawkish Fed uh, for high quality bonds. And you can pick your spots on credit risk and try to eke out some better returns uh, in that environment. I think the big challenge for investors, we had a gusher of monetary policy, a gusher of fiscal policy. Both are headed in the other direction. What does that do to asset markets broadly? It, 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 some caution is probably warranted in answering that question. Along those lines, something I'd read just recently is we're, we're watching some of the rotation, some of the violent moves here early in the year uh, was uh, one of our sources suggested that they're very particularly watching the high yield market. Because we, we've said credit, credit is strong. And, uh, and you mentioned that you're still overweight, but pulled back. Are you overweight, but pulled back because you're starting to concern yourself about credit or are you in that we're watching valuation camp, as Phil suggested, for stock market? Pulling back is entirely predicated on valuation. The default rates in high yield are a pittance. The economy is uh, probably the strongest of our, of our careers, uh, having a lot to do with where we came from. Uh, you know, the pandemic was a rough ride and, and the fiscal and monetary stimulus was, you know, unprecedented. Uh, and the economy reflects that. So we're, we are getting more cautious due to valuation. Um, not due to some concern that default risk is suddenly on the rise. That, that's really not the issue. Very important thing to underline. And so now, as we've discussed where we think one might best position for the new year, uh, we're, we're going to turn to our forecast for some of the, uh, some of the major uh, data points out there. And here we are coming along the end of the first week of January. It looks like it might be a a negative week, Phil, and I don't know, if there's some old adage about so goes the first week of January, so goes January, so goes January, so goes the year. And here we are talking about a 10% return. Phil, do you poo-poo that? Do you poo-poo those, uh, those old adages? And what, again, is your suggestion for earnings, the S&P and GDP growth this year, please? I don't poo-poo that at all, Linda. Uh, actually, it's an important thing that I look at. And there's, there are three indicators that we look at at the beginning of the year uh, in conjunction. There's the Santa Claus rally, which uh, takes the last five days of the last year and the first two days of this year. That was pretty good. That was up about one and a half percent. Then you've got the first week of January indicator that closes today. As you pointed out, not looking good. We may be underwater there. But I would argue that we had a couple of nuclear blasts uh, this week. Uh, number one, with the, uh, the minutes from the Federal Reserve on Wednesday and, and with this very confusing jobs report this morning. Uh, so the third indicator uh, will break the tie, and that is the full month of January indicator. And we're not going to know the answer to that for, for another couple of weeks. Um, so I, I, we're still constructive for the year that we think that earnings are going to be up about eight to 10%. Uh, we think stocks are going to be up, you know, 10% or so from 4,800 last year to 5,300. But we go in expecting that there's going to be a tremendous amount of volatility, that there could be multiple five to 10% air pockets over the course of the year uh, based upon uh, concern, confusion, with inflation, Fed policy, 
fiscal policy, midterm elections, et cetera. Um, so just buckle your seatbelts, boys and girls. It's, it's going to be a rocky year. And uh, uh, we think we'll end up at a good place. And there may be opportunities to invest at, at some really good points during that year. Well, your earnings per share up 8 to 10% kind of matches your return expectation for the market. So I suppose you're suggesting no multiple contraction this year, maybe not until next. And have we initiated a 2023 target? You're quite right that we are not looking for any multiple expansion over the course of the year. A lot of this 115% rally we've enjoyed in stocks from the bottom of the market, March of 20, to the 4,800 level at the end of last year, Earnings were up 50 some odd percent last year, and we got some very strong multiple expansion. With the Fed raising interest rates, we think perhaps four times over the course of this year, uh, multiple expansion is probably not a high percentage bet. Um, but we're not looking for a significant amount of multiple degradation because uh, bond yields, in our view, are at an extraordinarily low level to begin with. So if they were to go from, you know, 1.3% as they were about a month ago, up to, let's say, 2.5% this year, or maybe 3% the year after, that would be just sort of getting it back to normal. Remember, the math and the Fed model suggests that the equilibrium point is around a 5% treasury yield, around a 20 PE. Um, you know, so theoretically, we should have had much higher PE multiples when treasury yields were you know, down around one and a half percent. We didn't do that because we felt it would have been suicidal. We felt that bond mm. yields needed to move up. We're right on, completely on board with RJ's uh, duration committee and their 90% uh, target uh, in terms of the expectation that yields were gonna rise. So we were you know, sort of holding ourselves back, if you will, uh, providing a, a much less generous PE multiple on stocks because we fully expected that treasury yields were going to rise. And it appears that we're now in the early stages of that, that cycle. Did we initiate a 2023 expectation, Phil? From a corporate earnings standpoint, uh, we already have a $250 earnings target. Uh, and that implies, uh, again, about a 10% increase, give or take, from the $230 forecast that we're making for this year. Uh, our early S&P 500 forecast for calendar 23 is a very muted 5,500, uh, literally a mid-single digit increase over our calendar uh, target for this year at 5,300. Now, there's an asterisk associated with that, which is that at some point during calendar 23, investors are going to start to look out to calendar 24, and uh, our crystal ball is very cloudy there in terms of whether the potential for much higher inflation levels and, and possibly eight interest rate hikes by the Fed in between now and the end of calendar 23 uh, begins to imperil the economy to a recession in calendar 24. Now, my colleagues in the bond market, who are much smarter than my colleagues in the equity market, they're going to sniff that out much quicker than, than the dopes on the stock side. <laughs> um, and so we may see treasury yields peak at around 3%, let's say in the middle of calendar 23, and actually start to go down as the bond market starts to price in the risk of recession in calendar 24. Um, so we're very, we're very concerned about what may be a transition then to outright defense in the equity market in, in calendar 23, going mm -hmm. to healthcare and utilities and consumers and mm -hmm. real estate. Uh, so we'll see how that plays out. Okay, excellent. Before I leave you, our GDP forecast for the year. We right now are at 3.9% for calendar 22 uh, on a base of what we think is a 5.5% increase in calendar 21. And then you're going to say, well, what about 23, Phil? Uh, we're looking for a more normal 2.5%. GDP gain in calendar 23. Actually, I wasn't going to say that, Phil. I was going to say 3.9% this year. What about just in case inventory? What do you think? Is that in that? Is that in that figure? 
we're, we're expecting uh, inventory builds over the course of the year, uh, which would be additive to GDP. Uh, we've also, I will point out, have been looking for an inventory build over the last couple of quarters. So I'm sort of like waiting for Godot with yeah, all yeah. of the supply chain problems and we're short 80,000 truckers and we've got uh, the log jam on the West Coast ports. The inventory build hasn't happened yet. So we yeah. think it's going to come this year, but again, we'll we'll have to see. Okay, thank you. Thank you much. Moving on to you, RJ. What are your expectations for uh, say the 10 year by year end Fed funds? Starting with... Uh... It all comes down to inflation, as we've talked about, and, and how the Fed can behave in the context of either an inflation that tops out and rolls over and starts to come down in the air direction, or one that remains stubbornly high or even accelerates. Uh, let's assume that the inflation is, a, is getting close to a peak in the next quarter or so uh, and really starts to roll over. That's something Chairman Powell has uh, set up on the uh, podium in his press conferences, is that if we infl see inflation in the second, third quarter starting to come down, uh, that, that'll be reassuring to the Fed. So let's assume that that is apt to happen. Um, our view in, in, on the Federated Hermes fixed income side is that although that might happen, uh, it'll remain higher than the Fed ever wanted. Uh, and that's going to necessitate probably four hikes this year uh, to maintain uh, a prudent monetary policy in the face of too much inflation and trying to manage those inflation expectations we discussed before. How does the treasury market behave in that world? Probably a flatter curve. More likely than not, the 10-year treasury ends the year somewhere around two and a quarter. Another difficult year for total returns for very high quality bonds. And the question, the jury is out on whether or not that type of suite of policies is enough to uh, start to erode returns and risk assets too. We'll see. Um, I think a key factor to consider is the Fed is facing an economy with debt to GDP at the federal level of well over 100%. Nobody on the Fed has ever seen this before, nor have any of us. The last time debt to GDP in the United States uh, government was over that was uh, the end of World War II. Mm. Um, that might mean that the ability to tighten or the response of, to the tightening might be more burdensome uh, than recent history would suggest. Uh, maybe rates can't go up that much without causing a lot of fiscal pain. Um, if that's the case, it would be interesting to see if the Fed starts to follow up with their discussion evident in the minutes about reducing the balance sheet. Uh, another way to tighten financial conditions without just driving short rates up would be to sell some bonds, uh, something that mm -hmm. a lot of us thought we wouldn't think the Fed would do. But the word never, probably shouldn't be used to describe Fed expectations ever again. No one believed the Fed would buy corporates. Who thought they would buy junk? They Heck, they even bought munis, my home market, which I thought they should have done 20 years ago. Um, <laughs> the Fed is very innovative and faced with the challenge of debt to GDP at, at the highest levels of any of our lives. Uh, they might actually resort to balance sheet as more of a primary tool when it's always been viewed as a secondary one, only one that's invoked when you're at the zero lower bound. But now they can raise rates. Maybe they'll use the balance sheet because they don't want to raise short rates so much, driving bill yields up too high and making the federal government uh, you know, uh, face more and more cash flow demands. Should we fear the 50 basis point hike at a time? That's a great question. If I recall, the last 50 basis point hike was from Alan Greenspan when he was in, at, at the chair. Uh, prior to, to Greenspan, it had been employed a number of times. Uh, the Fed's policy framework obviously has evolved quite a bit uh, compared to where it was in the 70s and 80s. But that 50 basis point increment is, is, is not often used. Um, it could be very destabilizing if they do it. Uh, I think this Fed has been innovative, but they have worked very hard not to be shocking. They like to lay an expectations foundation for everything they do. So these minutes that we just saw were more hawkish than expected, but they weren't shocking. A lot of the things that, that were in there had been talked about, had been previewed by policymakers' speeches, the FOMC and the Federal Reserve Bank president's speeches. Um, so I, I think a 50 basis point move uh, out of nowhere w is unlikely. Um, on the other hand, if inflation just keeps going up, uh, you, know, you, you can't rule that out. Uh, although I think they would try to telegraph it. I think they would just say that 
you know, that, that uh, more extreme measures are in order or something. As an equity lady from your lips. Okay. <laughs> Fingers crossed on that one. Mm-hmm. And uh, Sylvia, can you give us some forecasts, particularly what you're expecting for global GDP growth this year and any central bank tightening around the world? Uh, so starting from uh, the global um, GDP growth, um, the expectation is that there will be a bit of a slowdown to say 4.5% this year. Uh, from 6%, almost 6% in 2021. Of course, that needs to be read in the context of it, of the large 3.1% drop in 2020. But still, I mean, the bottom line is that we'll continue to see above trend growth uh, this year globally. Of course, there will be like uh, divergences uh, across areas and countries. Um, emerging markets um, will uh, somewhat suffer from a lack of resources and, and early tightening in many, especially in Latin America, where basically central banks have already uh, tightened quite aggressively in response to high inflation and some threats to their credibility. Uh, in terms of um, tightening cycle um, and, and uh, well, monetary policy, I would say. Uh, as I said, in, uh, for the ECB, uh, I don't foresee any uh, policy rate change this year. And liftoff is more of a story for 2023 and possibly the second half of 2023, uh, as basically there will be um, a very uh, gradual um, path for, for the ECB in terms of withdrawal of monetary stimulus. Uh, and that's also because ECB is wary uh, of overreacting to high inflation, which is basically something that happened in the past, like in 2008 and in 2011, when basically the ECB hiked rates uh, too early. And so I think that there's also that element uh, playing out uh, for the ECB. Moving to the UK, the UK is, is facing a different set of challenges. Um, inflation has run quite high. Um, growth has, has somewhat disappointed, but of course we are seeing the same uh, catch-up dynamics in, in the UK. Uh, and so the Bank of England has already uh, started its hiking cycle after some back and forth um, at the end of 2021. Um, and uh, for this year, um, I, um, I expect uh, a couple of more um, policy hikes. Uh, but also, I think that the Bank of England will probably resort to quantitative tightening. So, um, as RJ said for the Fed, uh, the Bank of England will probably adopt a similar uh, mixed approach using different levers, not just the policy rate, uh, where hikes can be very detrimental in an environment of high debt. Um, and so I think that the Bank of England would adopt a similar approach. And in general, it's, it's a story of divergence. So in, in some emerging markets, like in Latin America, especially, we'll continue to see some aggressive tightening, uh, while in, for the ECB and the Bank of Japan, we'll probably see no change in the policy rate this year. Excellent. Thank you so much. Now, before I, before I say goodbye to you and wish us all good luck for 2022, there's a, there's a fun kind of parlor game in our business where starting a new year week, we discuss what would be a surprise, a surprise that might, but you think it might actually have a decent chance of happening. One per person, if you wish to do, please ever so briefly. Phil? Um, I, I think uh, the surprise may be the magnitude with which uh, the Republicans enjoy a red tsunami in the midterm elections next November. Uh, I think there's a consensus expectation that the House of Representatives may flip from, from Democrats to Republicans. I think the uh, looking at the last uh, uh, the, the, the midterm elections over the post-war history of the United States, I think that the magnitude of that, that victory could be more significant. So we'll see. Excellent. RJ, what do you think? I, I think the, the, the biggest surprise um, that could might, happen. might just well be the pandemic's over. That we have reached the point where extremely high transmissibility and lower virulence lead us to a manageable place. It's no fun for people who are getting COVID. And it's certainly not for people who are having severe cases. But for the vaccinated community, Omicron, knock on wood, seems to be relatively manageable. And perhaps this will be the final big throws of the pandemic. That would be a great one. Sylvia, what do you say? Well, we are all aware of the upside risk to inflation. And so I guess the biggest surprise would be like a sharper 
uh, drop in inflation, uh, at least for, for a time because of base effects and, and, and uh, lower commodity prices and maybe some correction of uh, supply constraints. Uh, and so I agree with RJ that inflation might stabilize at higher levels, well, higher than target, than central bank's target levels. But for a time this year, we might see like a sharper uh, than expected fall in inflation. And I would say all three of your guesses would be market positive if, if any were to come out or come, come close to being out. And I being the moderator, I get to have the last word here because I think a really fun positive surprise would be that after the supply constraints, which we're so very, we're so very looking so hard for anecdotes, any anecdotes that they're easing up are going to come gushing up, but there will not be enough supply on the shelves, big sales, and I, for one, am ready to go shopping, shopping and check out the sales. Uh, so now, thank you, Phil, RJ, and Sylvia. We will see how our predictions play out this year. And thank you to our listeners. We look forward to you joining us again on the Federated Hermes Here and Now podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, we invite you to subscribe to the Federated Hermes channel to get every Here and Now episode, plus our other series, Amplified and Fundamentals, for a global perspective on the issues, challenges, and trends shaping the investment landscape. I also encourage you to subscribe to Insights, email updates from our website, and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Views are as of January 7, 2022 and are subject to change based on the market conditions and other factors. These views should not be construed as a recommendation for any specific security or sector. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. International investing involves special risks including currency risks, increased volatility, political risks, and differences in auditing and other financial standards. Prices of emerging market securities can be significantly more volatile than the prices of securities in developed countries and currency risk and political risks are accentuated in emerging markets. Stocks are subject to risks and fluctuate in value. Growth stocks are typically more volatile than value stocks. Value stocks may lag growth stocks in performance, particularly in late stages of a market advance. Small company stocks may be less liquid and subject to greater price volatility than large capitalization stocks. There are no guarantees that dividend-paying stocks will continue to pay dividends. In addition, dividend-paying stocks may not experience the same capital appreciation potential as non-dividend-paying stocks. Bond prices are sensitive to changes in interest rates, and a rise in interest rates can cause a decline in their prices. High-yield, lower-rated securities generally entail greater market, credit, default, and liquidity risks and may be more volatile than investment-grade securities. In addition to the risks generally associated with that instruments, such as credit, market, interest rate, liquidity, and derivatives risks, bank loans are also subject to the risk that the value of the collateral securing a loan may decline, be insufficient to meet the obligations of the borrower, or be difficult to liquidate. The S&P 500 index is an unmanaged capitalization weighted index of 500 stocks designated to measure the performance of the broad domestic economy through changes in the aggregate market value of 500 stocks representing all major industries. Beta is a measure of the volatility or systematic risk of a security or a portfolio in comparison to the market as a whole. PE or price to earnings ratio is ratio comparing the company's current share price as compared to its earnings per share. The yield curve is a graph showing the comparative yields of securities in a particular class according to maturity. Securities on the long end of the yield curve have longer maturities. Federated Advisory Services Company.